Bridgerton. The new Netflix TV show, released in December 2020, is a Regency-era drama. It's lavish gowns, it's high society London, and the show features black and white actors portraying characters in different positions in society. So it's been praised for its color conscious or inclusive casting, which we haven't seen that much of in Regency-era dramas. So in this sense, the show aspires to create a multi-fantasy universe that is partly based on history and partly based on fiction. While the issue of race is there in Bridgerton, it is not completely addressed. The show walks a fine line, and I actually want to discuss that fine line with our guests today, both of whom have thoughts. Uh, And in fact, we have three guests, but instead of getting me to sing their praises, I'll invite them to introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Angela Tate, and I am a PhD candidate in history at Northwestern University, where my research focuses on Black women celebrities in the global civil rights movement with an emphasis on gender, sexuality, and race. Uh, And I also, admittedly, moonlighted as a romance writer in my pre-graduate school career, which is why discussing Bridgerton is a very huge interest of mine. Hi, my name is Rohini Jaswal. I'm a final year history and politics student at the University of Warwick and a student journalist and ex-editor of the Tab Warwick. Good morning, Rachel. Um, I teach at Cal State University San Marcos, which is a young campus in suburban San Diego, and it serves a really diverse population from children of immigrants to active duty Marines who are transitioning um, to civilian life. Um, In my research, I'm a scholar of 18th century France and of Haiti, and I've been writing about slavery in the Haitian and French revolutions um, for, for a few decades. So my first biography, uh, my first book was a biography of the French priest, Abbé Grégoire, and it looked at the origins of how France treats difference in citizenship. Um, it's actually coming out this June in paperback for the first time after 15 years. Um, my second book was called Haitian History, New Perspectives, and gave an overview of Haitian history Um, from the French colonial period to the 21st century. And I have a new book coming out in June, which we might talk about later. Oh, we are absolutely going to talk about that later. (laughs) And as a scholar of of film and enslavement, slavery and race, you bring a particular set of perspectives to this film. So in our conversation, we're going to explore that a little bit. We're going to explore the ways in which race and racialization is presented in the show its successes and failures, in our opinions, um, the importance of representation on screen, and the ways in which Black history and history in general are represented. But I asked you guys to start with a description of a favorite scene or character, because we have all watched it. So um, I have one, but I'm going to save it because I'm excited to hear what Angela has to say. So go ahead. Uh, I have to say that my favorite character was Queen Charlotte. Um, she was very nosy and, um, wanted to sit back and watch all of the high society members cause a lot of drama and get entertainment from that. And I kind of do that in real life. Uh, my friends know me for that. Uh, and also she had amazing hair, which is another thing that I 
tend to focus on when I want to entertain myself. Or critically analyze. I mean, come on, Hair the Musical, uh, Emma, the, the Irish scholar Emma DeBerry's book on hair and everything yes. it signifies. Yeah, Alyssa, did you have a either favorite or most loathed kind of character or scene in the, in the drama? Well, what I think I need to say first, right, is that Bridgerton is something that people can love or hate or both. So Angela might be giving more of the things that are wonderful about it, and I might be giving more of the take of the things that are uh, irksome. So in terms (laughs) of characters, I I do think that Golda, I'm blanking on her last name, who plays Queen Charlotte is amazing. And Lady Danbury uh, is also a formidable actress. Um, And I think that Regé Jean Page is very charismatic as an actor, though I prefer him in other things, I think. But for me, um, the character that bugged me the most is probably Daphne. Um, And my friend, Professor Annette Joseph Gabriel, when we started to watch this in December, um, just started to talk about um, how basic Daphne was and how she epitomized this certain idea that white women um, are attractive. I'm just gonna read this quote from her, if that's okay. She said, Daphne's value in society is premised on a particular idea of white womanhood that becomes quite violent when it is cast alongside, but really in opposition to a black love interest. So the show seems to be breaking down racial barriers, but Daphne is still held up as this kind of epitome of virtue that is the most desirable, while some of the black female characters are presented in a different way. Well, actually, I think for that one, it's got to be Anthony, um, because... He, I did quite like him, but there's parts of him that I just thought were like super toxically masculine. Um, he had this kind of macho thing going for him, and I'm not sure I loved that. And then obviously my favourites are the duo Penelope and Eloise. I thought they had so much depth to them. I loved seeing kind of like two strong women on telly. And also I'm a huge Nicola Coughlin fan. I mean, if anyone's watched Dairy Girls, you'll be obsessed with her already. And then to see her kind of in the Regency world was so amazing. So they're my faves for sure. Which brings me to Daphne because they're, yeah, I, I agree. Okay. Basic. She also had a lot of power though. And I think her power was, there was this really consistent desire to show her as trying to buck against a system that was very oppressive for gender. And I felt like the gender aspect and the marriage market was there all the time, right? That we couldn't escape this. And this is, I've read my fair share of Regency dramas with the Georgette hair, like heaving bosoms, of which there were many in Bridgerton. There are many. And um, uh, both male and female bosoms tend to heave extravagantly. But I did see Daphne as despite talking about her lack of power all the time, being shown as having a lot of agency and negotiation within that and exemplifying, as you said, this white purity that then plays out really problematically when you think about the the corresponding black character or a similar black character in a similar situation in society, Miss um, Thompson, who is brought to the town from the country to be married off. And I think, I guess, one of my love-hate scenes in the show was this moment where Miss Thompson needs to be married off in a hurry because she's got herself in the family way, only, of course, she hasn't got herself in the family way. You know, this is not what one person does. And she is 
paraded before suitor after suitor. And there is one particularly galling moment where she stands in the living room and a much older white gentleman with fake teeth plucked from soldiers from the battlefield and inserted into his mouth stands and she turns before him and is asked to smile. I hated it. Like it was awful actually to watch, particularly for anybody who is familiar with the trope of the slave market or is familiar with any history of enslavement and enslaved peoples. And I know that Shonda Rhimes is familiar with that history, the director. And so I feel like this was one of those nods at this history that anybody who knows it, you know it, right? But if you don't know it, maybe a whole lot of meaning is lost there. And I wonder if you guys had comments about that. So I wrote something for um, another audience. And because of my familiarity with the romance genre and specifically the Regency romance genre, and I have to plug uh, Sarah Wendell and Candy Tan's Behind Heaving Bosoms, which is a book that is supposed to be a primer to the romance genre and its tropes. And it was published in 2009. So it is slightly out of date, but it does fit into when The Duke and I was published, which was in 2000. So this is about 20 years worth of accumulated tropes and secondhand uh, knowledge and shorthand knowledge of what it takes to make a successful Regency romance. And so when you race bend these characters in a genre that has already been traditionally pitched as all white, and this was another uh, controversy in that a couple years ago at the Romance Writers of America conference, Julia Quinn said, I don't see happily ever afters, which is the traditional ending of a romance novel, as being available for people of color. So this is why I don't write them into my books. So therefore, race bending these characters in the film or the TV adaptation, and then also still attempting to give a nod to what was actually happening in the real historical timeline creates a kind of dissonance in that this was never meant to be. They were never meant to be people of color. They were never meant to be Black people in this series, the Bridgerton series, because the author herself said, I don't think that they can have happily ever afters because they were slaves. So then inserting this into this film version, I guess it was supposed to be a wink, wink, nod, nod, nudge of we are aware of the historical background, but it does not read very well when you think about, well, this is supposed to be complete fantasy, but then you throw in these real hard hitting, very horrible realities of history. So what does this actually mean when you're race bending these characters, if you still need to include this to say, well, this is why they exist in this world, but they also don't exist as enslaved people. I, I love, Angela, that you can bring this background from the Romance Writers of America. So I'm coming from thinking about how slavery is depicted on screen and more frequently how it's absent on screen and how it's hidden or it's distorted. So that's the lens that I bring here. So certainly, Rachel, that scene that you mentioned, it it certainly troubles me um, because there are He's inspecting her as if she was an enslaved person, but they're acting like that's not what's happening. So it's supposed to be colorblind, except that we know it's there. But the scene um, that I think bothers me even more, and I think that you had alluded to the fact that Melina mentioned it earlier, that is after three episodes, we are finally, it's finally explained to us, how is it that there are 
black and white aristocrats here. And I'll say first that one of the things that I was really looking forward to about the show and uh, intrigued by is that it was restoring black Britons to the early 19th century. They were there. Britain was an empire. There were free people of color, the children of enslavers um, who came to London for education. There were other people there. But um, as Angela said, Regency romance and other kinds of stories has erased them. So I was excited to see, or, or maybe I was curious to see what they were going to do with them. But it was so strange for me to see that it was treated as if there were no hierarchies of power were differentials and everyone was equal. And that was confusing to me. So this is finally explained in episode four where um, Lady Danbury tries to explain how is it? And she says, a new day began to dawn in this society after the marriage between King George and Queen Charlotte. And she says, we were two separate societies divided by color until a king fell in love with one of us, love conquers all. And that troubled me because it's pretending as if it has acknowledged um, slavery without doing it. And there's a French scholar that I really like named Christine Chivaillon. And, and she said, this is kind of typical of the European memory. She's not writing about Bridgerton, but describing the European memory of slavery. She says that instead of actually acknowledging enslaved people's sufferings or the brutality of colonists, the memorial machinery only acts as if this suffering were acknowledged. So it's acknowledging that there was racism and some kind of separation there, but it, it doesn't say what that was at all. And that omission, it, it bothered me. So I absolutely loved switching on Netflix and seeing this kind of set, the Regency set, and seeing it be so diverse and not talked about. I thought it was really great and it was really refreshing. And I thought for, this is the first time I've ever seen this. I've ever seen kind of people of color dressed in Regency era clothes. And I really liked it. Um, I would say I almost got slightly annoyed when Lady Danbury addresses the fact uh, that kind of race is, is an issue. And I totally get that might be kind of a controversial thing to say, but I just loved the fact that they were represented and it wasn't talked about. And it was, it was just part of the show. Um, however, what we can't ignore is that, you know, it does, it, there is some kind of uncomfortable issues with the fact that race isn't talked about. And I think, you know, the kind of colonial undertones of the Regency era and the institutional racism, which apparently doesn't even exist in Britain anymore, according to the Steele report. Um, I think there is kind of some discomfort there. Um, so I'm totally in two minds about it, a hundred percent. Um, so yeah. But yeah, the, the houses are there. The periodization is kind of there, but but there's this double speak about the racial realities that underlie it. And yeah, I have to say, I forced my partner to watch. And when the line about the, oh, love, you know, this white king fell in love with a black queen and then all the problems were magically solved, this, this really bothered him, actually. He was like, oh, so <laughs> I don't know. Angela, do you have any further comments on this historical accuracy issue or the nod at race? I think there's so many tangled skeins at this moment. I mean, I, on one hand, I've watched period dramas for most of my life. I did fine. 
I find, I guess, some kind of comfort in them in, you know, oh, escaping to the past. And I do know that a lot of, like, a lot of Black audiences have watched period dramas and have the same desires of, like, oh, I just want to watch Aristocrats, Beautiful Gowns. I don't want to watch films about slavery. I don't want to watch films about Jim Crow. Um, and so Bridgerton by race bending its characters fulfilled that fantasy. I think Bridgerton's kind of a bit of a trailblazer in that sense. I think it's pushed boundaries and been very clever about the way it's pushed boundaries without kind of even forcing it upon uh, an audience that may be resistant. Um, And I also think what's great about it, kind of taking it away from race for a second, is the past year has been really rubbish for a lot of people. You know, we've kind of been sat at home, working from home. um, And it was just great to see kind of some real amazing outfits and amazing settings and kind of loads of bright outfits and things like that and escape a little bit to this Regency era that I think has been romanticized. Um, But then bringing that back to race, you know, when you romanticize these things without really kind of questioning the racial inequality of the time, you end up in kind of a, a place of denial. And that is kind of the biggest thing that the issue that Bridgerton seems to be facing. So there's just a lot of tangle skeins. And then I'm also thinking about how this hand-waving around Empire, because the next season, they've also race-bended the heroine of the brother, Anthony, and she's going to be Indian. Um, how are, What is the hand-waving around Empire, particularly when we see the legacy of Empire today and also the legacy of not wanting to talk about Empire? I'm thinking about the... the um, the colonial countryside project. And I've been following that on Twitter. Um, and also a little bit of, um, I guess the government tussle over reinterpreting national trust sites to really talk about that. They were funded from empire. They were funded from slavery and there's been a lot of pushback and there is, there is a belief that these period dramas foster about the past in Britain, not only in the UK, but also in America about, well, this is a playground. And that is also where the Regency romance has emerged from the Georgia Hayer. Like the past is a playground for white people, for white characters to only look at high society, to look at beautiful gowns and balls and mores and manners, servants, masters, upstairs, downstairs, and that's it. There is no other interest in anything that really remotely reflects what these power dynamics and these tensions and these inequalities look like in the past. And a a lot of times when historical romance does touch on these inequalities, it's always to end with everyone ending up back in this elite, wealthy uh, institution to be secure, financially secure, which also reflects middle-class American anxiety. So Bridgerton is written by an American based in Regency England, coming from a Georgette Hare and then also traditional Regencies, which were published from the 70s into the early 2000s, very slim volumes that were Jane Austen light. And they're all written by Americans, read by Americans, and then projecting onto what England actually looks like and how England sees itself. And then there is the emergence of the popularity of Downton Abbey, which then further fosters this view of a benignness around this aristocratic setting and and these castles and oh the king is coming to visit and upstairs downstairs so there's just like everyone is is buying into this in the period dramas like of all races of all backgrounds but then 
race bending these characters or adding characters of color into these settings, these fantasy settings, creates a lot of questions around, well, what is historical accuracy then? Or is historical accuracy always going to reflect the sensibilities of the present in which it is created? But then how does that help people learn about history if there is no demarcation between what is accurate and what is inaccurate, particularly when I do know that a lot of period dramas pitch themselves as accurate and only accuracy down to, oh, the, the, etiquette, the etiquette is perfect and the costume is accurate, but nothing else. And I think a lot of people are really more concerned with the aesthetics of historical accuracy. But when you don't have a long history of being critical of watching them while you are enjoying them, you are going to come back with a particular kind of enjoyment that doesn't actually get to the meat of what his period dramas and historical romance and historical fiction represents. And then when you race bend these characters, you're not really getting the full picture of what, what is actually happening behind the scenes when you are making these choices. So Angela, what you just said was very rich and I really loved it. And we could probably sit and talk for an hour. I probably won't get to all of those strands, but a few of the things that I'll say is I, um, again, I'm coming from thinking about patterns in what gets green lighted by studios and what does not, and who has the power to decide what kinds of shows get green lighted. And that's the lens that I'm bringing um, from my book called Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games. E even though it's, if it centers on the Haitian Revolution, it looks more generally at how Hollywood portrays Black history and who gets to decide what is on the screen. So I'll say first that everyone talks about Shonda Rhimes being the executive producer of the show. But of course, it was executives at Netflix who had to decide to fund it and to choose this or another project based on what was in it. And even though she's the name executive producer on the project, the, the showrunner and the head writer is a white man, Chris Van Dusen. Um, and as Angela said, the writer of the original source material is a white woman, a white American woman who's a Harvard alum. Um, and so you've got that issue. And then this was picked up. Why was this picked up and maybe not something else. I totally understand what Angel is saying about the desire for escapism by Black audiences and not wanting to be confronted with a certain past. Um, I think those audiences know more about history that they can be fleeing from when they're seeking something escapist. Whereas for white audiences who don't think about racism and slavery all the time, they don't want to be confronted with it often in their entertainment either or at least studios think that they don't. And so there are certain patterns in the kinds of shows that are chosen um, to be greenlighted. And that's something that I look at. So just in this issue, I'll say, I, I don't have a problem with historical fiction. I There are many kinds of historical fiction that I love. Evelyne Trouillot's novel, The Infamous Rosalie, which is a fictional account of the life of enslaved woman in 18th century Haiti, is wonderful. I assign it to my students. It goes beyond what the archives can tell us since enslaved people were punished if they learned to write and we don't have records. 
I love that kind of imagining. Um, and I think that there's also escapist works, Afrofuturism, that can be set in the future at a time we haven't created yet, hoping and pointing towards this. But my problem here is that this is a fantasy world which erases conflict and oppression that is picked in a real time. So it is pretending as if this were 1813, and there are many white audiences who this will be the way they will look at the past and they'll say, what's the big deal? Things were not so bad. And it pretends as if it's historical. So that part bugs me. And if they really, this is a point that was made by my colleague Marlena Doe, who's another um, historian of Haiti. And she said if they really wanted to tell a story about Black royals and aristocrats in London in the early 19th century, let's just move forward eight years. Let's go to 1821 and let's look at Queen Marie-Louise of Haiti, who was exiled and went to live in London and then later in Italy with her daughters. The problem with that story, though, is that it is going to make people feel less comfortable because that's also a story of some of the racism with which they were greeted. And it wasn't simply that love conquers all. People don't want to be challenged when they watch TV. And it's in some ways, Shonda Rhimes has been quite clever because she has challenged people's perceptions without them even realizing. Um, and I think there's some power in that. Of course, there is discomfort, like I've said, with the colonial undertones and the fact that it's not addressed and they flirt with the idea of racism. But at least we're talking about it. At least we're having a podcast on it. You know, if you were looking for black historical figures, uh, David Olusoga also, his his work on black Britons provides some canvas for that. For me, actually, the interesting one was the black boxer, which, of course, we know there were, you know, and that's a liminal figure and that's an entertainment figure. And that did ring true to me, actually. And so there are these moments where you see the glimpses of the past cut through and then they're then they're lost again. Um, so much for historical accuracy. Yeah, no, 100%. I think it flirts with the idea that there's an issue, <laughs> never dives into it. And I think, I don't know if you've read Satnam Sangare's Empire Land, but his first chapter talks about, we won't talk about empire at school, we won't teach it to our kids. Yet every single subject that you learn at school is impacted by empire. Let's start with English language, bungalow, gingham, all these English words are from, you know, the kind of Indian Empire. So, sorry, the British in India, the British Raj. So, you know, we we love to think that it's not important, but it infiltrates every aspect of our life. And Bridgerton perfectly articulated that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's a great show. I think it makes steps, but it could have gone a lot further. Would it have been as successful? Maybe not. And that's kind of the sad truth of the world we live in. Yeah, Alyssa, what more did you want to bring to the table? Sure. So I could just read a few of those tweets that I had done, which was my kind of first raw analysis. So I had said, you know, this is a post-racialist fantasy. In its utopian world, blacks and whites are equally powerful in England, or rather the scale is tipped towards blacks, since Queen Charlotte, rather than simply having rumored to be of mixed racial heritage and passing as white, is presented as a black woman reigning openly as one. There is no slavery or brutality or acknowledged racism in this world. Um, the benevolent intention here was to repopulate London with people of color 
after so many costume drama productions, which erased black Londoners from history. Great. Um, but I argued that Bridgerton overcorrects to create a warped world um, in which, as Lady Danbury tells Hastings, the black kingdom and white kingdom were simply united, as I said before, when Charlotte married King George and all they need to do is continue unity and mixing. And I asked, where was all this money coming from? Do we see the brutality of the enslavement that was going on in the colonial plantations that these aristocrats owned or invested in? No, that would be too stressful for white people. And again, these places like Netflix, or which is a streamer or Hollywood studios, the balance is still tipped so that the people making the decisions um, are overwhelmingly white and generally overwhelmingly white men. And I'm taking a break from my tweets. If uh, you couldn't tell to just say this is something I've heard over and over this year. One of the silver linings of the pandemic has been being able to be a fly on the wall in Zooms with high profile black directors and producers. And they're talking about what happens when they go with projects and what they're told. And you see that they have to shape what they're doing to get a green lighted to fit the white sensibilities of the executive. So I continued, Netflix would not be going to Ching while the view count rolled up if they showed, right, all of this um, uh, inequality. In fact, Bridgerton fits into a long Hollywood studio tradition where films on black history are funded only when they make white people comfortable. Slave revolt stories in which brutal enslavers receive retributive justice, like a Haitian revolution epic that would sympathize with enslaved Haitians, too stressful for white people, so studio studios won't fund. Danny Glover was asked when he was trying to make his Haitian revolution biopic about Toussaint Louverture, where are the white heroes, they asked him. But I said, in contrast, stories in which whites and blacks live together in racial harmony, studios love that. Well, is it just white audiences, though? So I guess I always have this alert that flares when people say white people as a whole or black people as a whole, right? And, and while I agree with your general point, it's like, well, but there are audiences of all colors who would love a Toussaint Louverture epic. There are audiences of all colors who would maybe think 12 Years a Slave specularizes, like spectacularizes violence against black people, even as it tells a story of resistance. Can I just throw out there then, Rachel? So there are two issues, really. One has to do with presumptions by studios about white audiences. And that's something that I've seen again, black directors and producers saying, when you say to me, the audience won't like it, who do you mean? And why can't we get them to think in terms of black viewers or other viewers as the audience? But instead, their imagined audience um, is often white viewers. That, of course, is starting to change with um, things like Black Panther, but that's still in their mind. They have an idea. And the second thing is, I just want to be careful. On the one hand, I'm generalizing, but I also don't want us to do hashtag not all white people because we do need to talk about structures and there might be some individuals. I am white. I want to see these films. That is true. But when we look structurally, I think that I am more the exception than the rule in someone who cares about slavery and memory. Yeah. And thank you. As I was talking, I almost heard myself saying, oh, not all white. <laughs> so thank you for that clarification. Angela, I don't know if you wanted to jump in and add anything there. 
Uh, lots of things about structure, uh, <laughs> because again, like coming from this deep knowledge of romance industry, publishing, and also the production of period dramas, like Alyssa, you were saying like, oh, there is this imagined audience that is always the same. And I think about like, when I go on the Masterpiece PBS Facebook page and they announce their latest period drama, lots and lots of comments of people saying, I don't want LGBTQ characters. I don't want people of color. I don't want anything that's unsavory. There's a particular audience that is that gravitates toward period dramas because they see it as cozy, safe, benign, non-modern, doesn't bring in anything that will make them feel uncomfortable. But I do think that the widespread popularity of Bridgerton, Downton Abbey, Jane Austen adaptations show that there is a large community of people who will watch these period dramas and they all have different perspectives, but there's this particular audience that everyone always thinks about because of this, what, 40, 50 years of masterpiece theater in the U S I don't know. How, I, I'm sure it's probably a similar audience in the UK that coziness and I don't want anything that disrupts me and makes me think that I'm a bad person or the past is not fun. Um, and this also bleeds again into historical romance. Um, Beverly Jenkins was the only, pretty much the only black writer of historical romance since the early nineties for a long period of time because of this belief that, well, the past for black people is not fun. It's depressing. It's not uh, ball gowns and etiquette and upstairs, downstairs. And she's also had this interesting pivot in her books. She's published by the same publisher as Julia Quinn, coincidentally. And I think she had her, I think she started publishing before Julia Quinn did as well um, for Avon, where in order to combat this belief, the simultaneous belief that the past is depressing for Black people, while also, well, this can't be accurate because I didn't learn about this in history. She has footnotes and endnotes and bibliographies at the end of her books to combat oh, this isn't, this can't be real because I didn't learn about it. So then there's just this constant loop of like, well, Black history is not taught in its full breadth. So people don't believe that they would exist in this period. While also, again, they the only things that are greenlit are slavery, Jim Crow, oppression. So everyone is conditioned to think Black history is depressing. Black history is violent. Black history is sad. Black people are always going to have bad lives if we think about the past. Um, and then there has been a, a small growth of more Black historical romance writers, such as Alyssa Cole, who wrote a series set in the Civil War about Black spies, um, uh, Piper Hughley, who writes Christian historical romance set in the early 20th century. But again, there's still this difficulty in fully penetrating this historical romance, historical fiction market because of who is drawn to the past or reading about the past or seeing the past retold. And I've always said that what gets green light for historical romance, historical fiction, all comes down to fantasy and what people want to fantasize about the past and how that reflects on themselves and how they want to ref like project themselves into this role in the past. And when people of color are there, it kind of disrupts this because actually when the race bent casting of Bridgerton was announced, lots and lots and lots of Julia Quinn fans were very unhappy because historical romance, Regency romance is for white people only. 
people of color in the past means that they're going to talk about slavery, which means they're going to talk about white people being bad. I don't want to see any of that. All of the things that are happening in this audience, different audiences, different perspectives, the historical uh, length of who gets published, who gets in to put into production and how we are now responding to it. Yeah. Um, Eden Simpson and Melina Yelanki have been helping us with questions and they're like, well, is this like fantasy and difficulty situation? Is this part of the whole Meghan Markle debacle? Thought I'd throw that in there. Wondered if you'd thought about it. I have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, again, this goes back to how I believe that the rejection and resistance she faced is based on multiple things, mainly to do with who is supposed to be in a position of power, who is supposed to be a part of this fantasy. Uh, When Kate Middleton married Prince William, I remember there being memes of uh, Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie as Cinderella's ugly stepsisters, and Kate Middleton was Cinderella, and Prince William was Prince Charming. So there was always this element of fantasy and, oh, this is the right storyline. Meghan Markle, why is she here? Not only is she mixed race, she's older than Prince Harry. She is divorced. She's an actress. She's an American. Middle class, um, self-made. She is not from, she's not to the manor born, as they say, as I've read in a number of things. And so globally, it was kind of like, huh, interesting choice. How did she even meet him for him to even want to marry her? Because everything about her is wrong for who should be with a prince. And the one thing that I really thought about, so this is why um, I was very interested in Prince uh, Queen Charlotte's hairstyles, because I just think about Meghan's mother sitting in the church with dreadlocks and a pierced nose and how already there had been this, this narrative like, oh, Meghan comes from Compton. She comes from the hood, bullet ridden homes and everything. And then here is her mother an African-American woman with dreadlocks and a nose ring does not look like an aristocratic mother. Um, So everything like, because of this projection of who is supposed to be in this fantasy, who is supposed to be in this fairy tale, they completely disrupt that. And I enjoyed the wedding for thinking through a lot of my issues with colonialism and also the irony of someone who is a descendant of slaves <laughs> marrying into <laughs> the family that built their wealth on slavery, <laughs> but also like wondering like, what did she see her role in this entire in, like institution, knowing that it is a colonial institution and she is not supposed to come from a black woman Uh, having a Black mother. She is not supposed to be there as someone who has all the chips stacked against her to be a fairy tale Disney princess. Unlike Kate, who was promoted in the media as, oh, she patiently waited for Prince William to propose. She was the perfect princess in waiting because she was quiet. She was demure. She's we don't hear her speak, whereas Megan is too loud. She is outspoken. We have heard her speak about race. We have heard her speak about feminism. We have heard her speak about topics that are taboo, like menstruation. And so that's not what a princess is supposed to do. She's supposed to be quiet and just be beautiful. And so we can project things onto her. But Megan does not allow anyone to project anything onto her. So she uh, she must essentially go, which is what ended up happening. That is a fantastic 
analysis right there. I, I watched the wedding and it's so interesting how our subject position also informs us, right? Because I have sung in church choirs all my life in Anglican churches, as it so happens. And so I, of course, noticed the sermon which had black gospel stylings in it. Like that sermon had call and response and it had engagement and that was also disruptive and that was also critiqued. Uh, and so, you know, it doesn't fit the script as uh, as we're all saying. Alyssa, you have heroically stayed silent for quite some time. So I wonder if you want, <laughs> do you want to take this as maybe our, our final um, kind of engagement? Maybe I'll get back a little to my book. Um, in connecting to what Angela just said. So there are definitely readers and viewers who want fantasy, right? And I think then there are others who want more accurate history. So when you said that people run away from stories about slavery and Jim Crow, I think part of it is that they're running away from stories about suffering and victimhood. And one of the things that I talk about um, in my book, Slave Revolt on Screen, is how Hollywood films... And those are the ones that people see, right? Because independent films that are made by African or Haitian directors don't get wide distribution because the legacies of slavery and colonialism, as I argue in my book, still determine what we all see on our screens and who gets to tell that story. So when we see films about slavery, more commonly it is enslaved people suffering and then being saved by a white hero. Whether it's 12 Years a Slave, which happens to be one of the better Hollywood films on slavery, I think, but Brad Pitt saves the day after they all suffer, um, or The Free State of Jones, where Matthew McConaughey <laughs> leads them all in revolt. Um, that's the kind of story that Hollywood likes to give us because, um, and when I say us, <laughs> I mean white audiences who are its imagined audiences, because then they can imagine oh, if I was there, I would have helped. And it allows um, white audiences to avoid their complicity um, in the past or even just how they benefit now, even if they weren't, if their ancestors weren't here, how they benefit now. So I argue in my book that stories about slave revolt and black agency instead of suffering, which black audiences would wanna see and then white audiences like you and I they don't get greenlighted because to show retributive black violence against oppressive white enslavers is something that is, whether it's true or not, is seen as too stressful. So one of my favorite films in this regard is by Chris Rock. I discovered that Chris Rock was like the pop culture me. He was making this argument about the fact that the Haitian revolution is too advanced a topic for studios, that you can't make a film on it. So he has this parody film called Top Five from 2014, which shows his character. He directed it, wrote it, and he stars in it. And his character is making a Haitian Revolution biopic. But it's an absolute disaster because the studio does not want to promote it. No one wants to see this film about enslaved people yelling, kill the whites. Um, and it's a total flop. And he said in interviews that this is true, that no one really would want him to be able to make this kind of film. And we can look back at Nate Parker's The Birth of a Nation. Um, th there are certainly many issues that surrounded that film, including Nate Parker's own past um, as someone who had been accused of rape. Um, but the film was one of the most um, ambitious and I think serious Hollywood films ever on slavery and slave revolt. 
And um, when I saw the trailer in the theater, the audiences all gasped. It got an unprecedented deal at Sundance. But then when it came out, audiences didn't see it. And it was A.O. Scott of the Times that proclaimed it was going to be the must-see and won't-see film of the year. Um, so those are the kinds of patterns that I look at um, in my book when I'm talking about what gets greenlighted um, and what happens when someone proposes a Haitian revolution film. Representations of the past on screen have power and influence. Bridgerton has brought many viewers great pleasure, but it also reveals traces of empire, controversial racial representations, and it shows how the Anglo-American media industry selectively portrays colonialism, racism, and violence. In doing so, it shows the industry's own hierarchies and prejudices, even as it begins to tackle them. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of these issues. You can catch season one of Bridgerton on Netflix now as we wait for the release of the second season. And for those of us who want to love or critique the show further, there will be plenty more. Shonda Rhimes and the production crew have just announced Queen Charlotte will have her own spin-off, and Netflix have approved series three and four. So another huge thank you to our guests, Dr. Elizabeth Seppenwall, Angela Tate, and Rohini Jaswell for joining us and giving us their takes. You can find their socials, the books mentioned in this episode, and also a link to Alyssa's new book, Slave Revolt on Screen, in the information box. Thank you all for being with us, and be sure to join us for our next episode as we discuss and explore the legacies of empire in museums with two incredible guests. Until then, it's goodbye and take care. From me, Rachel Gillette, and our fabulous production crew, Melina Yalanki and Eden Simpson, coming to you from Utrecht University. Thank you.